You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Surf Simply podcast. It is Thursday, the 12th of February, 2015, and my name is Harry Knight. With me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everyone. And Oliver Davis. Hello, everybody. So we've got a big episode today. We do. We've got a new studio. And when I say new studio, we're in the same room, but with a lot of new expensive equipment. Hopefully, we sound slightly better quality. We're all wearing very expensive headsets that were that were bought through my addiction to buying stuff off Amazon every time I visit my sister's house you in Florida. Are, you are a good customer for Amazon. <laughs> I know, it's getting a little bit out of control. The boxes <laughs> are like piling up. I'm, uh, yeah, I need to get my brother-in-law to build an extra room on the side of his house just for my Amazon visits. Yeah. One day, one day, they'll have an Amazon in Costa Rica. Yeah, I wonder and if they will. We can all just buy inexpensive There's Amazon in Mexico, isn't there? Do you know, living in Costa Rica and then going to the States... You, you kind of, it sounds like a, a bit of a, a, a funny odd thing to say, but I walked into a Whole Foods just to buy some stuff I was making dinner for everyone. Mm-hmm. And like the selection is incredible. I know yeah. it's a bit of a cliche, but like it really blows me away. You've got like just tons of beautiful looking uh, vegetables. You know what the fruit and vegetable section in Whole Foods in the States looks like? It looks like... Uh, when you see like a Victoria's Secrets advert and it's just all models lined up in underwear and you think, <laughs> yeah, but no, like a group of women don't really look like that. Fruit doesn't look like that. Fruit, yeah, they're like fruit pornography. <laughs> they are, the it's Whole like Foods is like the Victoria's Secret but, supermodels but of fruit. classy pornography, not like Hustle magazine. Uh, I feel like we've got sidetracked quite early on in this episode. We have. Um. <laughs> oh, so no, it's a special episode because we're recording on our new equipment, so hopefully we sound a little bit better. We usually record sitting around a table, but today we're all kind of like lounging back on sofas and on the rug, so we might have a more laid-back feel to it all. Yeah, it goes against what the uh, what all the experts seem to say. Yeah, so we're meant to be on hard, uncomfortable chairs. Really? Yeah. Mm. I like the informality of this stuff. Well, I think that's the problem, is you can relax too much. The other thing <laughs> that makes it a very special episode is that we've got Ollie back. Hi. And I say back because we actually did our first ever episode with Ollie. I was in the pilot that was rejected. It was the pilot that never made it to air. Uh, we thought we would have... We thought we'd have a beer just for a bit of Dutch courage to relax into it. We ended up having a few issues w- with the, the sound and had a couple more. And then uh, did a very long record and we decided it just wasn't really the kind of thing that should <laughs> yeah, ever be broadcast. <laughs> no, there's a lot of waffling going on. Indeed. Unlike um, this episode, which so far has been, so far been very succinct. succinct. How have your weeks been, guys? Yeah. I've had a really good week, actually. We've been, the resort's been closed this week. Yeah, uh, it's been lovely. So I've had a lot happening with... Uh, we're building two new video coaching rooms, which sh- should be nearly there now. Mm-hmm. So um, that's going to be really cool. It's going to make video coaching sessions in the morning, organizing the time of them a lot better. And I think all the guests are going to be really stoked coming in, having uh, a, a room specifically just for video coaching in rather than in the past. We've sort of used the yoga room and the rancho and other bits of the resort. So I'm really excited about that. It was fun doing the using the Living Home 3D software to do a CAD walk-around rendering. Yeah, that was very cool. Yeah. Th- How long yeah. did that take you? Um, about eight hours. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, are you saying really because you thought that was a lot or little? I thought you were quite practiced at it and therefore would be able to throw it together quite quickly. Well, I, I designed the other bits of the resort like four years ago using the same uh, software and yeah, I completely yeah, yeah, yeah. forgot how to use okay. it. Our friend Brad has used it quite a lot, so I could have gone and asked Brad how to use it, but I feel like that would have been... You would have entered the black hole of Brad's (laughs) new house. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of looking at the carpet and then back at his computer screen again and then back at the carpet again. Yeah. Wondering when you can leave. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> so, I thought, so I thought I would, uh, yeah, you do it, uh, do it all myself. But then that was really fun. Also, I'm very excited because I've got a new Hypto Crypto, which you have as well, Harry. We've I got do. We've got team surfboards. This is very exciting. What, what, tell me why you uh, picked the Hypto Crypto. Everyone I've known that's used one has been pretty excited about it. Um, it's quite a well talked about board. It's a well talked about yeah. board. It just it won last year. I think it won the SEMA board of the year. For, for, for our listeners who aren't familiar with what the Hypto Crypto is, why don't you give them a quick rundown on it? Yeah, it's a slightly odd looking board. The front end is o- almost like an old school fish, old school single fin, quite a flat rocker. Um, quite a lot of volume in the front of the board. The wide point of the surfboard's been moved quite a long way forwards, and the back end comes back to quite a quite a pulled in little pintail in a way so it's a beautiful looking surfboard i think because it's all very rounded along the edges almost yeah. like a, a sort of shorter fatter version of the old pipe guns that you would see with a lot of weight up near the nose yeah and absolutely. then a, a quite a pinned out like tail a, like a teardrop shape yeah like yeah, a, yeah, yeah. like a, going from tail to nose a kind of like a teardrop yeah um and what i think they look very very beautiful i love boards with rounded edges just aesthetically but what's the uh, how, how different does a board surf when it's got all of that volume up in the front of the board? So by putting a lot of volume and a lot of width further forward on the surfboard, what it tends to do is straighten the rail line through the back half of the surfboard, which will tend to make the board quite drivey and, and, and accelerate down the line with a lot of speed, which the Hypto Crypto has a good reputation for doing. Um, one of the problems is when you do that, it can make the board too drivey and too... Uh, inclined to go in a straight line, which you, you and me have both got very specifically barrel riding boards, your deep six and my my rock up. And those can be a little bit one directional. You know, you've really got to stamp on the tail to get the board to turn. And one of the things that um, Hayden Cox has done so well with the, the hip toe is he's managed to blend that very straight, very fast outline um, with some other elements into the rocker and the bottom concaves to keep the board quite loose and quite playful. So it's it's probably not a board you're going to dig out in 10 <laughs> 15 foot barrels. Unless you're Craig Anderson. Unless you're Craig Anderson. But it is probably one of the things that, that I've heard a lot about it is that it, it, it almost is the, the ultimate all-rounder. You can ride it in I was overhead s- barrels and you can ride it in quite small, gutless surf. Yeah, I was going to say, because it's got quite a pulled-in tail, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be a disaster to have that board in fairly big surf no have you seen the footage of craig anderson riding it in um greenbush actually i'm not sure if he was riding it at greenbush but there's certainly some amazing footage of him riding it at uh, skeleton bay yeah which is an insanely heavy wave Uh as well yeah yeah so in my mind that's how i'm going to be surfing it although in reality i suspect not the uh the pipe pro was on last week so that was fun did you guys catch a little bit of it yeah i mean it was amazing they had amazing conditions for it they've had amazing conditions for the whole run of the triple crown this year and the Volcom Pipe Pro was no exception. They got big, solid, clean waves on day one. It kind of looked like Indo on steroids. It wasn't even the classic offshore Hawaiian. It was just like sheet glass. I didn't watch the whole thing, but I, I, I noticed I, I had to go off and do some work. And then I come back and I flicked it back on. And in round two, they had eight-man heats where the best single wave won. What was that? There was a specialty event, uh, a specialty heat, because there was a whole bunch of the old, the old guard. We're out in that. Ah, oh, that's why and Derek Ho was out there. That's why Derek Ho was out there, and it was it was a, a new format, and it was it was just the best single wave in the the heat. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And eight guys in the water, but yeah, no, I, I think there was. I, I think Bruce Irons might have been in it, but it, it wasn't. Most of the guys in that contest weren't 
Bruce opened up with a nine, actually. Yeah. It was really cool. And then Derek Ho got a couple of amazing waves as well. And at 50, he just looks so stylish. Yeah. Uh, really cool to see him out there. Yeah, no, that was a bit of an expression session. And then, uh, yeah, and then the rest of the, con- yeah, they had good waves for the whole thing. Kelly's quarterfinal heat was just amazing. Mm-hmm. He had like a five second barrel at backdoor that was just incredible. Yeah. And uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, those who didn't see it, John John went on to win it. One of the things I thought was interesting, and going back to our previous discussion about um, Eddie Rothman, I did think it was interesting, given the conditions, given how good that contest was. I thought it was interesting. It was only a 3,000 event. Yeah, that's quite surprising. You would think that would be, what's the highest? 10,000. So there's, there's, there's two levels above that, 6,000 and, uh, and 10,000. So, I mean, it basically, it's the equivalent of a three or four star event. That does seem really out of whack, considering so how good the waves were and that it's one of the only QS events which has got a lot of CT surfers in it. Yeah. Now, what I was wondering is have they deliberately kept the seeding? Because if they if they seed it up to a 10,000, uh, 10, that would eliminate a lot of people from being eligible to enter. And it would eliminate a lot of the local Hawaiians who don't necessarily have good seeding on the WQS. And I wonder if they're deliberately keeping it as a low seed to give the locals a chance to get into the contest. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, I don't know know that that's true. That was just a speculation that came into my head because I did think it was kind of odd. And it it was in like, you know, Eddie Rothman had this big rant. We we pulled it all up a couple of episodes ago. But and for the most part, what he was talking was rubbish. But there was this thing that, you know, some of the events do seem to be a bit out of kilter with with what they're how how highly they're rated given yeah. uh, what they are and some of them are rated maybe a bit too high for the conditions and some of them are rated a bit low and I, I guess actually you just hit on something that we didn't really touch on in that episode which is that there is this dilemma whereas if you give an event like that the rating that it probably warrants then it makes it inaccessible to people that aren't that haven't got enough points yet who maybe uh, are Hawaiians and locals yeah but then of course if you rank it lower then they can get into it but if they win it they don't get perhaps as many points as they deserve for winning it so it's it's kind of a tricky one yeah it is I'm sure Eddie will come back to us with a well thought through (laughs) and uh, articulately concise yes video highlighting the logistics of how we can solve that problem I think he will Okay, so I thought I'd talk this week a little bit about GoPro cameras. Ever since the GoPro 3 came out a few years ago, suddenly the quality of video and photos that the cameras can produce is actually something worth sitting up and taking notice of. It's certainly higher resolution than what goes out on social media. In other words, there's more docs per square inch than can be handled by Facebook or Instagram. Mm-hmm. And so we're now at a stage where photos taken by GoPro are as valid as any other kind of photos, pretty much. Yeah. Maybe not quite there for print, but, you know. No, no, no. I mean, th- they're what, 12 megapixels? Yeah, That's the same as Laura's 7D. And, they shoot, and it shoots in 4K as well, which yeah. is beyond the resolution of most TVs. So the GoPro 2, which, if you guys remember, is the one that had the little semicircular uh, Second World War submarine-style uh, lens on it, mm-hmm. uh, isn't worth buying at any price. The quality of the photos is just really, really flat. So there's, there's a couple of things I want to mention here. First of all, GoPro cameras are a lot of fun. And, you know, the fact that you can post them on Instagram and share it with your friends, whether you're doing it, um, you know, with your local surfing community or just to, with your friends to make them jealous when you're on holiday. You know, it's, it's really good fun. It's lovely that we've got a medium of not just to take photos, but to share them and get feedback. But, you know, you guys are all familiar with the Internet and how it works. So I don't need to tell you about that. The reason that I got really into GoProing was actually because like a lot of surfers, I got quite a bad lower back. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you're lying static on the board with your legs not doing a lot of work and a lot of upper body paddling. You, you can have lower back problems. 
that and the fact that you massively overtalk your backside top test. You do massively. That's, that's, <laughs> that's we have photographic <laughs> evidence of it. That's very that's very true. Uh, I was actually going to do another episode a little bit about backs and how to avoid them and how to treat them because it is such a common surfing uh, issue, you know, for people who've surfed for a long time. But yeah, my, my backhand surfing is a good example of how not to surf if you want to avoid getting a bad back. Yeah. Anyway, one of the best things you can do is to go and exercise the opposite set of muscles. So by going out and swimming, you know, your upper body, or with fins on by body mm -hmm. surfing, mm -hmm. your upper body's staying a lot more static. You're doing a lot of lower body work. It kind of works your quads and your glutes and works your back muscles in pretty much the opposite direction. And it's just a really, really good way for looking after a lower back unless you want to start doing crazy things like jogging and exercise out of the water. <laughs> Can Yoga. you imagine? <laughs> so... Uh, I got really into going out and swimming and body surfing and I actually found that body surfing with a hand plane sometimes w when my back was feeling a bit delicate would sometimes hyperextend my back and leave it a bit sore so I, I would go out body surfing without a hand plane which I still do and I really enjoy. When the surf isn't barreling uh, sometimes I would f find it a little hard to get motivated to go out there so I started going out with a camera just as something to do you know to swim around have a reason to swim 10 yards over here and then 10 yards over there mm -hmm. and you know then you come back in and you froth over the photos and then you see how stoked people are looking at the photos and and the whole thing's just a lot of fun everyone loves a water shot and and the the nice thing about the gopro shots from the water is that if the wa the waves always look about the same size so if the waves are huge they're going to look smaller and if the waves are not very big they're going to look a lot bigger so yeah you can get really great gopro shots in the water when the waves are about waist to shoulder high where a shot from the beach just wouldn't look that impressive uh, yeah. i think that's the cool <laughs> thing isn't it because when you subconsciously even when you look at a photograph of yourself you're comparing it to other photos of other people so when i look at surf photos of me I'm seeing how I look compared to other people. And the cool thing with the GoPro, like you said, because the big waves and the small waves and the medium-sized waves, it all just balances out. A shot of me on a slightly steep wave actually looks quite similar to a shot of Jamie O'Brien at 20-foot pipeline. Yeah, it's incredible. Cause that, that if, and if you think about that, listeners, you've got the fisheye effect of the camera and think about how you can take a... A, a GoPro photo or any photo with a fisheye lens inside a living room and then think about how big that room suddenly looks and that can you can start to wrap your head around how that effect works. So the GoPro cameras, you've got two ways of using them. You can use them on video or you can use them on photos. And just the tip I would say is this. First of all, if you're going to get video, uh, and you, you need to have a, a full like five or six seconds of magic. Yeah. If you're going to get photos you only need one-tenth of a second of magic. Yep. If you go out and you're doing GoPro video for you know, a, a, an hour, you'll be lucky to get one good clip out of it. You'll probably get half a dozen really good photos. So uh, you're going to get a lot more bang for your buck taking photos than you are with video. The other thing that you want to think about is where you're going to put the camera. Of course, you can go out with the camera attached to your board. You mm -hmm. can go out swimming like I do uh, with the camera with wearing fins. You can go out with the camera in your mouth. Uh, we've got that one, Ho Steve. He makes those kind of mouth grips, which is a mm -hmm. sort of adapted snorkel mouth, uh, mouth yep. piece. So you can breathe through it and hold the camera there. It sets my gag reflex off so badly. It's very <laughs> yeah, strange. Very strange. It's really weird cause because a, a snorkel doesn't. Go and really? a, yeah, a snorkel doesn't and a scuba um, regulator doesn't. But that in my mouth, and I don't know whether it's the weight pulling down or something, but it, it sets my gag reflex off like a couple of times in a session. Do you think it's because you're getting quite out of breath when you're paddling around, whereas when you're scubaing, 
you, you're not getting out of breath in quite the same way. You're getting out of breath when you're scubaing as well, aren't you? Do you? It's yeah. funny. Do you find yourself when you scuba dive trying to really control your breathing, and then after about ten minutes, just being really short of breath and yeah. having to take and some massive <gasps> breaths anyway? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the funny thing when you record on video with the GoPro in your mouth and one of those uh, mouth things on. The the sound when you oh get yeah. it back is Darth horrific. Vader. Yeah, you just you hear yourself paddling for waves going. <laughs> 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 So, yeah, I mean, to get video from your board, when you've got the camera mounted on the front of the board pointing back towards you, like it's not going to look good. It's not going to look good unless you're pulling into really, really big, solid it's, barrels. Yeah, it's barrels, isn't it? It's, a, it's also very, um, it's very egocentric, that, isn't it? <laughs> well, you've got you right in the center of the yeah. image, and then what you've really got is just a bit of background moving around, and from that, the viewer can kind of infer what the wave might be doing or you, what you might be doing. It's not, it's not super impressive. If you even watch guys, I think there was some footage of uh, Garrett McNamara at Nazare with the yeah. GoPro camera on the front of the board. I mean, it could have been like a four-foot onshore beach break as far as the GoPro footage was concerned. You really just, you yeah. can't tell. I guess there's the nice thing that it, it is the only way really to do it where it's totally hands-off. You don't have to do anything. You just put the thing on the board and go. And, go. and you, you can largely forget about but it. But like the, the only scenario where it's good is, is a barrel, basically. Yeah. Because like otherwise it just... And even it then, has to be very good for anyone else to look at it other than you. Yeah, and it, even then, like the view everyone wants of a barrel is not looking back into it through you. That you want to be looking out yeah. through you, yeah, out and that's a the... much harder. You need a, a whole different setup to get that really? shot. Yeah, because otherwise, it it um, all the good shots are done with a pole. There's about a six seven inch pole mounted onto the tail of the board behind the tail pad. Well, I actually disagree. I think the best shots. If you are if you're out in barrels and you want to get GoPro footage of them, I think by far the best way of doing it is carrying it in your mouth in one of the little mouth uh, mouth guard things. And yeah, mm -hmm. Google host Steve if you want to. I feel I should say that because he sent us a free one and it's really nice. What a nice chap. Yeah. So put that in your mouth, take off. Then you've got the camera facing forwards at the barrel, and then you can take it out of your mouth and you can pull the camera around and kind of go full 360 degrees yep. around your head. You guys must have seen mm. the classic Jamie O'Brien ones where he's got it pointing out of the barrel and then he turns it around so he's so the camera's pointing at him. And because the camera can move around relative to you and the board, you, as the viewer, you get a much better sense of it. Obviously, that's super hard to do. What you need to do is to practice uh, putting the GoPro camera in your mouth and then paddling, popping up and bringing your hand up from under your chin and whipping it out of your mouth quite quickly. And that, that's something you can actually practice out of the water, geeky day, that sounds. <laughs> uh, because if you first try and do it when you're dropping into a barrel, you're really going to struggle. Uh, and I'm speaking from experience there. Yeah, I think as well, uh, you know, for most of the people doing it, actually there's so much other things that they're concentrating on when I they're pulling into say, a barrel. Like you probably need to concentrate on paddling into barrels. Pad <laughs> yeah, paddling you're in. Like, I, I can't get barrel, but I can get my gopro out of my mouth and, and spin it around <laughs> amazingly <laughs> i'm really well practiced at that so yeah the upshot of that again not very concise little uh, <laughs> bit of information is yeah don't really go for this the one good thing about having your camera mounted on the front of the board is that you can see what your foot placement is which is really important but you can also get that from videoing from the beach if you've got a halfway decent zoom so i would go with photos and i would uh, have your camera set to take three uh, to take 30 photos in three seconds. There's lots of different adjustments. I've had to play with them a lot. You can have 30 photos in one second, which is amazing. And you can also set it to do just a couple of photos a second. But 30 in three seconds is pretty good. So you press the button just about as someone takes off. You're swimming around in the impact zone in front of them. They're coming towards you. 
you know, you, 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 the first photo is taken when they stand up and then the last photo, they'll already have gone way past you. Yeah. I found one thing that really helped a lot was getting a pole, you know, just having a 42-inch pole, I think I've got, and that allows you to reach over the top of the wave and more than double the amount of photos that you get. I just saw you smirking. Well done. You managed to resist making any pole I was going to make right. a 42-inch a, a pole comment. But <laughs> the other thing you want to make sure of is when someone's coming towards you, you want to check whether they're goofy or regular. I've seen so many great photos ruined because I was just on the wrong side of someone and you end up taking a picture of their Big butt, butt as they shot. go past you. Uh, it's really, really great to go out if the waves are steep and closing out because all waves look less steep when you shoot from the water. So if you've got quite steep closeouts, people are taking off on them you can get a really fantastic shot much much better photo you know just in that split second before it yep. closes out much much better photo than if the waves are soft rolling waves where maybe they're going for ages but no single one moment is going to look that impressive yeah it tends to make them look very flat actually yeah when they're when they're perhaps not as flat as they look on camera the other thing I would say is check out the pictures immediately when you get out of the water while it's still fresh in your mind where you were when you were taking them you know so you've, yep. you've, you've got your fins uh You've got your pole, you've got your camera, you go down, you do your session, come straight out immediately, like load them up on the computer, go through them, put a folder on your desktop and just pull across any you think might be keepers. Then take the, take the camera out, format the camera, which is really important, it stops the card yep. corrupting, so you've got a nice clean empty camera for next time. Then on your computer you've got a folder, you might have taken 600 photos when you're out there, on your computer you've then got a folder with like 20 photos in it. Again, go through it again, maybe pick half of those, those are the ones that you keep. Yep. And then you can upload them and uh, tag Surf Sintly them on Instagram and we'll find them and check them out and see how good they are. Uh, I wouldn't, if you really love doing this, I would think of it as a really good way of cross-training for surfing and a really good way of staying fit. I wouldn't try and make a living out of it. Selling photos is a tough gig. We've got a few friends that are surf photographers and it is a really hard thing to do. Yeah. So to sum up, don't shoot video from the board unless you're either really bad or really good. Stick to photos, get a pole, buy some fins. You can make some friends by going out and taking pictures of people in a busy lineup and uh, ingratiating yourself into the local surfing scene. Spend some time getting smashed around and by the end of it all, you'll have a back as flexible as a teenager and thighs like a footballer. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. So, adding further to the speculation that is already out there, Kelly Slater appears to be buying into... Firewire surfboards. Um, there was another podcast um, on uh, Surf Splendor where they interviewed the uh, the CEO of Firewire Surfboards, who basically confirmed that that will be happening. He was quite cagey about it. It, it was quite he? cagey about it, but he ba- essentially he alluded to the fact that that will be happening, although it's already it's it, it's kind of in in talks. They're in talks um, about it at the moment. Which is surprising that it's leaked because I would have thought that that would have been quite a, a quiet under the table thing. Kelly Slater hasn't put anything out on his you know, Instagram feed, which he's pretty big on. Well, do you think that Kelly Slater has bought into Firewire or do you think that are you going to come to that, are you? Well, I mean, no, no, no. I mean, no. What, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say, do you think he's bought into Firewire or do you think that Firewire have essentially sort of given him sponsorship and they've said what we're going to do Kelly is give you a load of shares that you can buy for a dollar so now they can say well, Kelly's bought into Firewire and essentially what they're doing is they're sponsoring Kelly well it's a funny one isn't it because I mean on the one hand 
Kelly's a huge marketing lever, isn't he? Like a, yeah. an enormous marketing lever. If you had, I mean, if, if we remove that for a second and you had Mr. Joe Bloggs, um, unknown investor, and then Kelly Slater investor, and they both had the same amount of money to bring to the table, the deals would be different, wouldn't they? You know what I mean? Like the deal you would give one investor would be different to the deal you would give to the Kelly Slater investor, which is interesting so yes you could argue that they'll just give him a kind of a, an augmented sponsorship deal but the, on the other hand he's in quite a strong position there actually I yeah i mean i would i would be surprised if because he could in terms of getting surfboards he can choose who he wants to ride with he doesn't need sponsorship from firewire does he i mean he could almost I, i'm not saying this is what happened but he could have gone to firewire and just said to them if you give me uh 10% of the company, I'll ride your surfboards. Exactly. I mean, it's just really taking, it's taking a sponsorship to the next level. I mean, rather than Mick Fanning sort of saying, hey, I wear, I wear reef flip-flops uh, because they're great. It's like Kelly saying, I ride, I, I'm buying into Firewire surfboards. Why didn't you do the Kelly Slater in an American accent? Because <laughs> I can only do either like a Texan or a New York accent. And hey, I'll buy your Firewire <laughs> boards. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> Um, yeah, what what I feel like is that you were saying that maybe they'll just give him a sponsorship deal and some shares, but basically he won't have a seat at the table. Is that kind of what you're saying that might be a well, possibility? I, I'm sure they'll give him a seat at the table because, I mean, he, no one can argue with the fact that he's a very articulate surfer and can probably, um, can probably actually put into words very specifically what it is he wants out of a surfboard better than any other surf. A surfer I've ever heard talking about it. I was going to say because he's very tech-minded, isn't he? He's very tech-minded, and I would say that there would there wouldn't be a stronger person to actually start at least consulting um, and and sort of doing what you're doing at the moment, really, Harry, with the trace. You know, saying, well, yeah, we tried this and and that worked quite well, but then we could chop this, change this. He'd be a very key player in the development of surfboards. Anyone would argue that. Yeah, I, uh, did you manage to find anything? Because the the rumours that I've seen is that he would be buying the controlling share. Like yeah, well, he, yes. would, he would be buying the 51% controlling which, share which, of Firewire. Which means not only does he have a seat at the table, he suddenly has a lot more sway in the direction oh, of the company. that's interesting. I thought it was just a little 10%. No, 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 no. no, no. no, no. The majority share, which, which kind of brings me to the next point, which is... But did... If, if it, by the way, it, listeners, if you can hear a little bit of noise, that's because Ollie, he's still getting used to the headsets, is shaking his head vigorously. <laughs> the uh, microphone's rattling around. Sorry, everybody. I'm, uh, <laughs> um, did you... What's the CEO called? Mark Price. Mark Price, that's it. The rumours that I've heard is that Kelly's not getting just a couple of shares. He's getting sort of the controlling 51% share. 50, yes, yeah, yeah. Th so did, did Mark Price confirm that? Um, Do you think? I mean, he was they quite... Asked that, that they asked that specific question and he didn't say no, uh, yeah. basically. Which, which, I mean, appears like it might be the case. Yeah. Again, it's speculation. But that sort of brings me to the next part because what also backed that up was the fact that they seem to be talking about the fact that they want to move, Kelly Slater specifically wants to move um, Firewire into very much more of an environmental direction. Yeah. Um, using bio resins and using the their, their wood laminate decks and things like yeah, that. Yeah, because uh, Firewire have been going a little bit down that route. They've got those TimberTech boards, Timber which tech, are, yeah. uh, are certified as, as surf sustainable, the, the surf sustainable or sustainable surf. Um, NGO yeah have have said that those are you know about as green as you can get yeah how much do you think of the desire to be sustainable with the production of surfboards is 
just a, a, a desire to look good from a marketing point of view and how much of it is do you think actually genuinely being concerned about the footprint of the production i would say 99 percent um a marketing uh, that's very cynical I, <laughs> but I, I, i'm, I'm I afraid i'm afraid i do get cynical with such things because like with a lot of um environmental marketing there is very much a discord between uh what's actually beneficial and what sounds good um on an advertisement uh, going yeah. back to the volcom pipe pro before they made a big thing about how it was a sustainable surf contest and they seemed to be mostly talking about how they were recycling the plates and cups that food and drinks were being sold on at the beach and i was thinking number one the evidence, just broadly speaking, the evidence that recycling has any positive environmental uh, effect at all is still a little bit more controversial than most people think. It's not like a black and white thing. And secondly, when you're having a surf contest where people have literally flown from all over the world yeah. and then they're recycling the cup that they drank their water out of when they got to the beach, you know, it, it seems like slightly disingenuous, don't you think? It's the, it's the sort of the... The constant thing that environmental branding seems to have a complete absence of any kind of quantifiable result. Funny ones, I went into a shop to buy my mother a new kettle um, a few months ago, and there was the eco kettle. And I was in Curry's back at home, back in the UK, and I said to the salesman while I was just choosing the kettle, I was like, how, how is a kettle an eco kettle? Like, how could you in any way change the fact that you're using electricity to heat water? How do you make that more efficient? Because it's a straightforward thing. There's nothing more efficient than an element heating water. It's probably like 99% efficient at its job. He said the reason why is because on the scale of how much water you put in, it's not litres or pints. It's how many cups you have. And therefore, it can be classed as an eco kettle. That is amazing. It's lunacy <laughs> is what it is. It's <laughs> lunacy. I bought it. But I have big cups. I bought it and it was twice the price. There's, there's a really good podcast by a guy called Brian Dunning. He does a podcast called Skeptoid. And each yeah. week he like looks at different you know sort of things in pop culture and he looks at the evidence behind them. And one of the things was about whether locally produced food is more or less environmentally friendly than mass produced food. And of course, everyone who wants to think of themselves as being green always is a big supporter of local food. And, and he actually sort of, when he looked at the maths and the economies of scale and how inefficient it is with lots of people producing small amounts of food rather than one place producing a lot of food. He actually said, if you want to be really, really environmentally friendly, you should get humans and put them in tower blocks so we've got the minimum amount of footprint. We should mass produce the food and it should all go to everyone in tower blocks, you know, which is the opposite of what everyone likes, the idea of being, you know, living on your own yeah. little farm and growing your own food. But it's actually far less efficient and you'd have a much bigger carbon footprint. Yeah. I just, I mean, I think it's fascinating how counterintuitive these things often are. And um, all of which takes us back to Kelly Slater and Firewire. Well, the last point I wanted to make with that is is that um, I guess the question that you would ask yourself is how often do you buy a surfboard and therefore how much environment? Because it's not a completely green, sustainable surfboard. It's not like... Um, basically, what they've done is they've minimized the use of harmful substances used in surfboard production. Yeah. They haven't completely eradicated it. And so, therefore, how often do you buy a surfboard and therefore how much effect or impact is that really going to make because that was quote kelly slater kelly slater's quote was i have left a large number of 
surfboards i've left a large like footprint of, of of used surfboards and therefore i feel like i need to give back what i have taken how many surfboards do you think kelly slater's got through in his life that yeah, is a good point that I is a good the, point the average for a competing pro is about 100 a year and kelly's got a 40 year career uh, 20 year career behind him somebody do some quick maths oh well that would be uh 2000. 2000. 2000. I feel like he would have got through more than 2000. Let's boards. let's add another 2000 for good luck. <laughs> uh, 4000 so far. I mean that is that is quite significant but he's not he's he's one individual. He's an exception to the rule. Um I'd ha- like how, how, ma- how many surfboards is the individual buy especially firewire surfboards because they are on the upper end well, of the I price range. Well but I think I think the advantage with firewire right now is firewire seem to have quite a big market share of the weekend warrior surfer. Yeah, there's that they're making a lot of very user friendly surfboards. Well, yeah, but they're surely the demographic that would buy the least number of surfboards. Or the least frequent. Well, buyers. they would be the least frequent buyers, but I suspect that they may also be the largest demographic. Okay. Yeah, the number of if you think about it, you you've got one group of people that only buy one board every couple of years, but there's a couple of million of them. And then you've got right at the top of the table you've got the guys that buy, you know, multiple boards a year. But actually there's probably only a few thousand of those. And then you've got people like us that only really need to buy one board a year, but for some inexplicable reason, keep getting more and more and yeah, more boards. Keep, keep buying more and more <laughs> boards. Um, so I'd really like to see if we've got any listeners out there who are quite data savvy uh, and are looking for a uh, little bit of a project. I'd be really interested to know what percentage of the environmental footprint left by the manufacturer of a surfboard is caused by making the surfboard and what percentage of it is caused by the transportation of the materials and the transportation of the surfboard to the shop? Because I bet that that is probably the significant cost. Possibly. Well, no. Actually, you'd think that the transportation would be a significant cost. Apparently, uh, sorry, Patagonia did a study um, when people called them out for saying, well, if, you, you know, if you've got sustainable products, what about you haven't factored in the shipping from Asia that you guys have to do with all your products? And they said after their study, they learned that it made up for only 2% of the energy needed in the full production and shipping and that's of them. And that's a non-petrochemical product. Non-petrochemical product. Well. That's interesting. Although clothes are much easier to transport than surfboards. Well, they are, but you could imagine that it would be something comparable. The Firewire as well, a couple of years ago, they started using um, a lot of biodegradable packaging on their boards. They don't package they the do. boards in yeah. plastic and yeah. uh, bubble wrap. They do it with, um, uh, oh God, it's, it's recycled cardboard packaging. It's quite I mean cleverly that, designed that's recycled the thing. cardboard. It, it, it is easy to pick holes in these things and say, well, yeah, there's no basis for it or it has no you know it has no actual impact but actually it's it's certainly a a good step in a good direction isn't it like whether they have a large impact or a small impact it's a good step in a, in a good direction well, yeah you're you're, you're um, sort of in embedding in people and getting people used to the idea that it's something they need to be concerned about and aware exactly. of even if it's not going to have a huge effect in itself you're helping just generally change the zeitgeist of how people think yeah you're you're sort of adding momentum to a to a, a movement i guess having said that when someone sits down with you and they really explain the magnitude of the ecological disaster that's imminent you know, right in front of us as a species, you're like, you can't even compute it. Your, your brain just can't get your head around it. You're sort of like, wow, that's, that's terrible. I mean, you know, thousands of people are going to be killed. And, well, I guess... Uh, ooh, I better well, buy a new surfboard. I'll get a new surfboard, have a cup of tea, go for a surf, and just feel really guilty 
at some point during the day for not really making much of a difference. It is a tricky thing, isn't it? Because realistically, me turning my light off or eating a couple of vegetarian meals a week doesn't make very much difference. It's only when everybody goes down that same route. And I guess with Firewire being one of the big brands um, within surfboard manufacturer, if they can lead the way to uh, at least a reduction in carbon footprint of a surfboard, which probably, other than the international air travel, is probably one of the big things that that makes surfing as ungreen as it as it is. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. Then then that can only be a good yeah, thing. Yeah, green shoots. Looking at the other side of the the deal, what do you reckon Kelly Slater signing on with Firewire? Where do you see that going? Like, is that going to do Firewire a lot of good? Is it going to well, do Slater a lot of good? I was going to say it seemed to do GoPro an awful lot of good. I, I think no, Go- I think GoPro with the three. GoPro have done really well anyway. Uh, and I mean, especially now that they've been featured on the Surf Simply podcast. I mean, oh, that, yeah, this is course. the big time this for them. This is the big time. <laughs> but I think, I think you're right. I think the combination of Slater and Jamie O'Brien legitimized the use of the GoPro in the water. Because beforehand, if you saw somebody with a GoPro on the water, it was a bit like, nah, okay. Yeah. But then suddenly, Kelly and, uh, Kelly and Jamie O'Brien started using them and getting some pretty cool shots with them. And I s- I've seen since then a lot more better surfers using GoPros in the water, whereas oh. before it was very much the intermediate surfer. I was going to say that the, the pivotal word there is, is in inverted commas, cool, isn't it? They weren't very cool when they first came out, and yeah. now they have become somewhat more cool, haven't they, to use yeah. as, as a brand. And I think Kelly will probably do the same thing for Firewire. I mean, Michelle Barres and Taj Burrow were the two big yeah. uh, big names that Firewire had riding for them before. I remember buying a couple of Taj model Firewires a few years ago and I actually snapped both of them at a little beach break just north of here within about six months. And I kind of gave up on Fire a little bit after that. I found that, and I don't know if the construction's changed a little bit now, but I found that as soon as there was a ding in them, they just sucked water in. Yeah, well they, they use, they've got, a Firewire have a couple of different construction techniques, but the the standard boards that they make have a very, very low volume foam. So there's an awful lot of airspace in them. It's 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 lighter than, uh, it's, it's less than a third of a standard PU blank, uh, the foam. So there's an awful lot of airspace in there. Well, I quite like the look of the Michelle Barres model, the uh, 510. It's about 27 and a half litres. So I thought I might give that a go because uh, I haven't bought a new board for a while. Yeah, <laughs> get a few <laughs> new boards. It's been, what, a week? Uh, so maybe that's how that's what Kelly's tagline should be for Firewire. Get a few new boards. Ke- be Firewire, sponsored by Kelly Slater. And then in quotes, it could be like, do you really need a new board? Do you really, though? I wanted to talk this week about surfboard volumes. Um, I've had a couple of emails over the last few weeks from different guests uh, from the resort and a couple of people from the podcast just asking about what size surfboard um, would be the correct one for them to use. And uh, there's just been an interesting change over the last five or ten years, this move from the traditional old dimensions of length, width and uh, thickness on the board uh, to people talking more and more and more about volume. And I remember about five years ago, it was pretty rare. You'd Certainly you'd never find the volume written on the surfboard and you might, some of the websites had it on. And now pretty much every surfboard brand displays the, the volume. Do you feel quite vindicated because your board design lecturettes that you do with our guests always said that in a few years' time, volume would be the most significant thing that you'd get from a shaper? Yeah, and, uh, I, uh, I, I feel very vindicated. I feel and that that I've, I've, I really feel that I have spearheaded the whole movement. I was going to say, yeah, you <laughs> led the change. <laughs> no, but I, I, it, it is good to see. One of the things that 
um, used to happen when surfboards were classified by their their length, width, and thickness, and then the you know the sort of board that it was. There was this big move. There's always been a, a general move to try and ride similar boards to to what the the pros are riding. And there was this general push that, you know, well, I'm going to ride a shortboard. And then the defining feature of the shortboard was how long it was. And so the defining feature then of how good of a surfer was you were was how big of a board you were riding. And so there was this sudden like, oh, I'm on a 6.2. I'm pretty good. When we have guests come and stay at the resort each week, and mm-hmm. I talk to them on the first evening, uh, uh, I sort of ask them to expand on their long and short-term goals in their surfing. And the singly most common thing that our level four surfers always say is, oh, I want to ride a certain length board as the end goal. Yeah. And I always try, try and say to them, you know, that's like if you were going to be a, if you wanted to be a sculptor, instead of saying, I want to be able to produce sculptures like Michelangelo, it's like saying, I want to use the same chisel as Michelangelo. Yeah. You know, you're putting the, the cart before the horse. Yeah. Like the, the board is a tool to do what you want to do. It isn't an end result. So it's a total, uh, it's a total misconception. Absolutely. And we'll, I'll get back to that point later on. Going in back through the history of things, the surfboards generally was this real push for riding, you know, shorter boards. The shorter the board there was, the better a surfer you were. So it was this real kind of goal to, to go smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, one of the things that really helped change that was back in what the mid 2000s that sort of retro revolution movement where everyone dug out old fishes and longboards and and all sorts of stuff like that and the cool thing was that with that was it suddenly became quite cool to ride very short fat boards uh, and a lot of people got quite excited that they could suddenly go from riding a 62 to riding a 510 do you remember that movie litmus that came out as a free dvd with i think as a three video i mean it, it was even pre dvd uh, it came out there's a VHS on the front of, I think, maybe an early surfer's path. And it had Derek Hind riding these wide, short old boards at Jay yeah. Bay. And uh, yeah, that was, I think that was one of the, the main films that came out that helped spearhead that movement. Yeah, well, that was certainly one of, the, one of the things that moved it. But so that, that movement helped a lot in that people were able to ride boards that were very, very short, which boosted their ego. But actually, it was still quite big boards. They were able to paddle in, catch lots of waves, and, and do all of that. So that, in a way, was quite good. One of the problems with the uh, retro movement was it meant that those classic three dimensions no longer really gave you the information about the surfboard. To say that you were riding a 510 shortboard didn't tell anybody anything because suddenly the surfboards are all different shapes and sizes. So there's this real move to then start using volume to differentiate. And so, uh, you know, how much water would that board displace if you dunked it in? Um, uh, the average shortboard would probably be what about 25 to 30 liters um, and a longboard would be somewhere from around 60 all the way up to about 100 liters I think that that is really really important to know I mean I think that most surfers could tell you oh a shortboard's around like you know five 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 six up to about six two six three longboards usually around nine foot yeah I don't think many people could actually tell you the literage uh, and I think that it's absolutely crucial if you consider yourself a surfer and you're interested in like buying boards and changing your quiver, adding to your quiver or buying your first board to have a basic uh, knowledge of what big and small boards are in liters, knowing that that range goes from down around 20 up to about sort of 90, knowing that that's the ball. The that's the ballpark. That's the yeah. ballpark is is super, super useful piece of baseline knowledge. The I think misconception is that most people learning how to surf, including myself when I was learning how to surf, was that the the destination and the goal is to become the modern shortboarder. That's the goal. Yeah. Everything else is a stepping stone to that goal. 
Would you agree? Like, once you get onto the shortboard, you're like, well, here I am. Okay, I've arrived. I'm the, the accomplished surfer. Whereas if you're on any other bigger board, it's not regarded as cool and it's outside of that bracket. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, and when, just to clarify for our listeners, when Ollie says learning how to surf, uh, because we all coach surfing and we work with people who've been surfing for 10, 15, 20, 25 years, we don't necessarily mean just entry-level surfers yeah. who you might see learning how to stand up. We mean people who maybe have been surfing for 10 or 15 years and are still doing video coaching, uh, you know, yeah. still working on their surfing. Certainly, yeah, you're, you're always learning. Because yeah, I think the language that we talk in sometimes because of the way our resort works and the way we coach is is quite different from how a lot of the surfing community still talks about surfing. I'm digressing again, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. You're doing the edit. <laughs> so no, once people start to use volume, what, what we've then seen a lot of is on an awful lot of different websites, there are suggestions for uh, recommended volumes for your height and your weight, the, the height and the weight of the surfer. And one of the problems that I've seen with those is that there's no definition of the level. Okay, so for example, the old chart they used to have on the, the Rusty website, you see uh, you can be an advanced, an intermediate, a beginner. And so for myself, I weigh in at about 180 pounds, about 80 kilos, give or take. And uh, that then recommends that as an advanced surfer, I should be on around 28, 29 liters of volume. Uh, that that's fine and if I went across to uh, being a, an intermediate that would put me on about 34, 35 litres and then if I go across to what they call a beginner it suggests around 55 litres they're very oversimplified I feel those. well but what does it even mean now exactly. having read through a lot of stuff and, and because I'm quite interested in, in, in this stuff I can tell you that the advanced numbers are based on what their team riders are riding, and in particular, Josh Kerr. Yeah, and that's what Geordie's riding at, that kind of ratio of weight to volume, isn't he? Right. So, th you know, that's that's a very, very... Uh, that in that advanced level is... Is a very slim end of the numbers. Well, is very advanced. Like, yeah. you've really got to be pretty good before you want to be pushing pushing that Wh line. Which would, but which then would leave intermediate as a huge bracket of people. Well, does it? Because what do they mean by a beginner? Now, I would suggest that, that at a 55-litre board, that's quite small. That's your standard average 7 foot to 7.6 is going to come in at around 50 litres. So I would say that that's a beginner. That's the beginner out the back going down the line attempting turns, not the first time wobbling to your feet beginner. Yeah, I mean, th there's two things that are interesting there. The first thing is, as we've developed the resort here, and our coaching program, we've found one of the most important things is to give the people that are coming to stay with us the ability to communicate to us accurately where they're at with their surfing. Yeah. And so we've developed our sort of level one, f one to four system. And, you know, on the website, it describes in, in a lot of detail what that means. And we ask people to commit to being, you know, one of those levels or somewhere on that scale. Yeah. And I think the whole beginner intermediate thing is a terrible way of describing levels because I would describe myself as an intermediate surfer. I'm not a world champion. I'm not a beginner. I've yeah. been surfing for 20, 25 years. Someone who well, has been surfing for a thing, week I might also describe themselves as an intermediate I surfer because they've surfed before. Yeah, I don't think it matters what the label is. It can be level one, two, three, four, or five. It can be beginner, intermediate, advanced. There's a very cool company um, called I Am Bands, and they've got this whole system. You guys seen this? It's yeah. Almost like uh, judo belts, you know, different colored belts for different abilities. I think the important thing is that you quantify what you mean by that term. 
Yeah. Well, and know. also they have more denominations as well, don't they? Well, they have more denominations, yeah, but, but, but th- that I think that's pretty key. Surely. Well, except that again, based off those the the Rusty numbers that I read out, like you'd already be three levels through before you got to what they define as a beginner. There's no point in having uh, so okay. For example, at Surf Simply we have four levels, right, that we use, uh, and admittedly we really have sort of seven because we have one uh. 1.5, 2, 2.5, 3, 3.5. Um, on the I Am Bands website, what's the what's the URL of the website? Uh, it is well, IAMBands.com. So they have, I think, uh, like nine or ten different levels. But there's no point in having more levels than you are specific in the description of each level. I mean, yes. there's, there's no point in having levels one to five if it's not clear to the user whether you are level three or four. Yes. So there's no there's no point in in ex- in, in tightening the levels up more than the description of the specifics at that level allows for for the benefit of our listeners just we were talking before about how it's really important to have that baseline knowledge that boards go from about 20 liters up to about 90 something liters that's that's the kind of scale that we're talking in so uh we kind of did a little bit of maths and if you weigh yourself in pounds and then you measure your board in liters you can actually work out a ratio by which you start to develop a new scale, which is pounds per liter, a real ugly mix of imperial and metric, and start to know what the range of shortboards, specifically shortboard sizes, are. Yeah, well, so that that was the next thing I was going to talk about. We've gone through this volumes to uh, the, the weight to volume ratio uh, of a whole bunch of the, the pro surfers. We've done it with all of our boards. We do it with... I'm pretty much anyone that we can pin down and actually discover the the, the sizes. So 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 what? How does the scale? What is it? What to what? What are the numbers? <coughs> so like? right at the top end, um, with the guys riding the smallest, smallest, smallest surfboards. Really, it's kind of Kelly and John John that they are riding boards that are smaller than pretty much anyone else on tour. They're riding about six point six pounds in weight per liter of volume. So just to get that right, right, what you mean is for every. Uh, you divide liter. their body weight by 6.6 to give you the l- number no. of liters. Y- yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. For but every liter of the surfboard, they're carrying 6.6 y- yeah. 6 pounds of weight on top uh-huh. of it. So therefore, the higher the number, the smaller the surfboard. Yeah. Okay, so uh, so a 6.6. That's about the smallest number you can get. So if I if I, I uh, weigh 160 pounds, mm-hmm. and if I divide my weight by 6.6, then I just off the top of my head, I'm coming. What do you in weigh? Like sorry. 160 pounds. 160. So I'm, I'm coming in, I'm guessing at like 25 or something 6. like that. 6.6. So that would be a 24.2 litre board. Okay, so 24.2 litre board is going to be, for me, riding an equivalent volume board as to what those guys are riding. Absolutely. So 6.6 yeah. is, the, is the top end of the spectrum, i.e. the smallest board. Absolutely. Now, that said, most of the guys on tour aren't riding boards that are that size. Most of the guys are actually riding at about 6 pounds per liter so as the as that number comes down as it goes 6.6 down to six and then down and down and down what you're getting is a relatively bigger board for your size exactly yeah. and what's mm-hmm. the what's the other end of that spectrum so what's well, for example the <coughs> biggest board that you could just about duck dive so I mean, a real entry level short board yeah so as an entry level short board and we've been playing around with this and it it does depend a little bit on your physique. You know, guys carry a little bit more weight in their upper body, generally have a little bit more upper body strength to help get the board underwater. But it's going to be somewhere between f- 4 and 3.5, probably, pounds per litre. Okay, which so would r- r- realistically, we've got really 4 to 6. So 
if you take your if you take your weight listener and you pull out your iPhone and pull a calculator up and you divide your weight by four, that's going to give you in liters about the biggest board that you can duck dive. Yeah, which and if you so take for you that would be about forty liters. Right. So if you take and then and then listener, if you take your weight in pounds and you divide it by six, then that's going to give you about the smallest board you're going to likely be able to aspire to if you decide that riding a really small board is the direction you want to take your surfing in. Yeah, and so it's, it's worth saying at that point, six pounds per litre, that is the ratio that most of the people on tour are riding. That's what Steph Gilmore rides her boards at. Um, it's what uh, Michelle Perez rides his boards at. It's what, uh, in fact, I mean, just averaging out, there's, there's a few little little spikes, but... But most of the guys on tour are riding between about 6.2 and 6.0 pounds per litre. Actually, I really liked something that Michelle Barres said in one of his post-heat interviews last year because he does ride slightly bigger boards than some of the guys that were ahead of him on tour. Mm -hmm. And he said, once you learn how to control all the power, then you've got the ability to put more rail in the water, yeah. which I just thought was a very concise way of saying, if you surf better, you can handle a bigger board. I, I really like that philosophy that's too often forgotten by yeah. people. Now, here's... The interesting thing, and this is this is my issue that I have, is that as we go down and we start defining, well, what, how many pounds per litre is Kelly riding? How many pounds per litre is Geordie Smith riding? The problem is, is that it starts to force me to look at my boards. Um, my boards are around about the 5.8 mark for my smallest shortboard. That makes me look at it and go, oh, well, maybe I should go a little smaller. Yes, because that would mean that, into the trap that of would, smaller is better. That would mean I was better. Exactly. And that's what worries me. And so here's one of the one of the things. If you ride a board that's too small for you, it comes with a whole ton of problems. You can't paddle fast enough to get into the wave. So your wave count goes down. You're paddling around like an absolute idiot in the water, putting loads and loads of calories down to not really get anywhere. So you're getting tired more quickly. You're spending less time in the water. Frustrated. When you're on the wave and the board's actually up and riding, it can become easier and easier to start bogging the rail and start forcing the board underwater, which is going to cost you speed on the wave, which is going to mean you're not going to make sections. It's going to be harder for you to carry speed through turns, things like cutbacks where you're trying to maintain speed and flow. You're not going to have to do it. There's all of these problems that come with riding a board that's too small. If you ride a board that's a bit too big, there is no downside. There, there really is no downside because you watch the guys who can genuinely, they have good technique, um, and they're riding a bigger board, even up to seven, eight, even nine foot boards. They're throwing them around. They're doing tighter turns than I will probably ever do on those boards because their technique is so, so good. It's a bit like the umbrella analogy. Better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Indeed. The two things that I see people who are riding boards that are too small for them, mm -hmm. the two problems I most commonly see them having that they don't always think of, is number one, getting over to where you need to be to catch a wave. So you're yeah. forgetting about paddling the wave or riding the wave. You see a wave, you see where it's coming, and you're like, I need to be 20 yards north of where I'm sitting in order to catch that wave. And you just can't paddle those 20 yards in the 10 seconds between when you first see the yeah. wave and when it's starting to break. So that's one big thing which reduces your wave count drastically. The second thing is, that a small a smaller board actually goes a lot slower than a big board, both when you're paddling it and when you're riding across the wave face. Mm -hmm. So 
what I often see people doing is they're on a bigger board, they're going faster, they've got more speed, then they put their weight right back into and can do a nice carving turn. People on a smaller board, if they put their weight back to do that carving turn, they're just going to stall in sync. So they shy away from doing carving turns and they end up just doing little trimming turns instead, which of course defeats the whole point in getting on a short board in the first place. Absolutely, and I, I think it's actually one of the big misconceptions with small boards because you see good surfers surfing a short board very quickly. There is this assumption that a shortboard is faster than a longboard, but actually in neutral trim, the longboard will go significantly faster than the shortboard. And it's yeah. only by keeping the board in the pocket and working the board aggressively from one rail to the other that the shortboard will go faster. Yes, it's the operator, isn't it, basically? Absolutely. The, the operator is making the board go faster. Yeah. So now this brings me to the final thing, because I had an interesting conversation the other day, a quite long conversation, uh, with some guys who are, again, they're playing around with... Uh, GPS and accelerometers and putting them onto the board and they were talking about uh, designing the app that's going to work but the really interesting thing is most of the all the companies right now that have this GPS tech and they're putting it on the boards it's all about bragging rights it's who got the most waves who went the furthest who went the longest and these guys that are building this one they want the tech to be able to coach you a little bit and one of the things they were asking me for was what are the keys? What do we want to look for in the data that's going to suggest that somebody's riding a board that's too small? Because it seems like a lot of people ride boards that are too small. Mm -hmm. And they're actually trying to build the device so that if you go out for a surf and you're consistently on a board that's just a bit too small for you, it's going to tell you. Oh, like here are the numbers. Look. Yeah, look, here you're, are the numbers. you are below the bell curve your, on all of these things. Your wave count is low. Your, yeah, your length of ride is lower probably. Well, I think that one of the big ones that I suggested was that it would be a combination of the paddle speed would be below average and the wave count would be below average. And if both of those things were happening, then you would probably want to see them getting onto a bigger board. Getting a bigger board would usually be a pretty good default well, yeah, solution. absolutely. You know, if, 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 if we go out and we're having a bad session on our shortboard, it's normally because the conditions aren't quite quite right. It's yeah. maybe a little bit shifty or it's a little soft. Yeah. What's our solution? Well, we go out and we, we go and get our bigger surfboards it's so that our wave count goes up. It's funny you say that, actually, because I've, I've <laughs> I was riding when I was in my early 20s boards that were around 22, 23 liters. Which and is it, ridiculous. And then in my late 20s, 26, 27 liters, and now in my 30s, I'm riding a board that's 30 litres. So I'm, I'm hypothesising a new uh, idea that maybe you should just ride in litres. Your age. Your age. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be really nice. 33 litres. I really like this shift to, to talking about the volume of the surfboard. I think it gives a really good indicator of, of uh, or a much better indicator of whether a board is suited to you than the, the old classic three dimensions. But as there has been this shift towards quantifying more and more and more what volume equates to certain surfers' ability. I think there's a real danger that people are going to push themselves down the old route of going smaller and smaller and smaller and not enjoying their surfing as much, which is, you know, where everything went wrong back in the, the mid-90s. And so if you're looking at a board, if you're thinking about buying a board and you're looking at two boards and one of them is a, a litre, two litres bigger than the other, Go for the bigger board. You'll get more waves. You'll have more fun. And for every advantage that the small board would have given you, overcoming those with the slightly bigger board will make your surfing technically better. Okay, so very quickly, uh, contest roundup. Uh, we spoke earlier about the Volcom Pipe Pro that happened last week. John John Florence won that, beating Mason Ho, Kelly Slater, and Sebastian Zietz in the final. I was stoked to see John John win it, but it would have been so good to see Mason Ho win one. John I'll tell you what, Mason Ho... Almost, uh, 
he was the informed surfer for that whole event, wasn't he? It was awesome. Yeah, he's really coming to his own this year. I'm a massive Mason Ho fan. Yeah. I'd love to see him get on tour. There's nothing coming up on the CT for the next couple of weeks. We've obviously got the um, Quicksilver Pro out in Australia in a few weeks' time, but we'll uh, have more on that next episode. What's the start date for that? Uh, 28th of February. For the QS and the Juniors, we've got a couple of events going on in Australia in the next couple of weeks. Happening right now is the 6000 uh, Aussie Open, uh, which is taking place at Manly Beach. Uh, that is a women's and a men's and a junior event. Uh, Hurley are putting that on, and that should be in the water as we speak, I think. Coming up next week, there's also the 6000 Burton Automotive in Newcastle uh, in southern Australia, and that is also a men's, women's, and junior event. We've also got, starting today, the longboard event in Trujillo in Peru, which should be quite fun. Um, and the only other bit of news, actually, on the surfing competition front, um, the bidding opened today for the ne- the new events for the 2020 Olympics in Japan. And surfing is one of the eight sports in consideration. Woo! I'm assumption not sure that, about that. Well, on the assumption that it would be done in a wave pool. Ah, uh, yeah. They'll have to go to North Wales. Like. Interesting. I think that might be a subject for a future episode. Quite possibly. So, forecast time. The Pacific, we've got a northwest swell running down the west coast of the Americas for the next couple of days over this weekend. Uh, Central America should be getting a little bit of that, which will be nice. Uh, There's a string of small swells coming out of the South Pacific over the next week, but there's nothing of any real significance showing up on the charts. Um, There's there's some good low pressures, so there might be something hiding in there. Um, Don't be surprised if we do see a little bit of south swell coming out. The Atlantic has two really big, deep low pressures and the middle of next week looks like it's going to be fantastic in Europe. Uh, a really good long period swell coming out of, of one of those. There's also a southern swell uh, coming out of the southern Atlantic and that's going to hit South Africa and Namibia uh, again around next weekend, the end of next week. Uh, so that should be quite fun. The Indian Ocean is pretty quiet this week. There is uh, a mixed swell hitting midweek, hitting Indonesia and West Oz, but it's all pretty choppy. There's there's nothing huge coming in for the next couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, hopefully you guys managed to find some waves. As always, if uh, you've enjoyed the podcast, please let us know. Please leave us a review on iTunes. And if anybody has any questions for us, please do send them in. You can get us at podcast at surfsimply.com. I think we should set up a hotline. Should we set up a phone number? Can it be on a red phone? <laughs> yeah, I think we should. No, no, you should have like a switchboard and have loads of lights. No, no, no. I want, a, I want a red phone that I can pick up. And there's just always some. Was there always someone on the end of the red phone for the nukes, do you think? Yeah. No, they that needed to go to the toilet? No, it was a student. Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> so just work experience. <laughs> it was work experience all like $6 an hour or something like that. <laughs> I don't have a quote for us this week. Oh, Should I we just wrap it up? Yeah. You've been travelling all week. I think we'll let you off without a quote this week. I have no one has said anything... Uh, no one said anything interesting on YouTube this week. Did you watch all the I watched. I've watched everything that's been uploaded to YouTube this week. Uh, everything. Every single video. Including all the kitten videos with the volume up. And yeah. there wasn't one thing that leapt out at me as being worthy of a quote to play at the end of this episode. Sad times. Sad times. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. Well, that is all for this episode. Uh, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Thank you very much for joining us, and we will see you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com.